Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for FBC Keller Media in the iTunes Store. And now, here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. I invite you now to take your Bibles and open them to the second chapter of the book of Luke. And this is a very familiar passage to your ears. You've heard it all of your life. In fact, it's one of the most familiar passages in all of the Bible. And we often read it around the fireplace. At least we did growing up in my house before we opened the Christmas presents. I encourage you to do that with your family this year. But this morning, let's look at the first seven verses of Luke chapter 2. The scripture says, Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. And this was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. May the Lord bless the reading and hearing of his word. Now, just by way of review, we spent a number of weeks in the first chapter of Luke, going verse by verse through those 80 verses. And remember that the author of this gospel is Luke, who is a physician. He's also a very precise historian. And he begins with the parents of John the Baptist, a man by the name of Zacharias and his wife, Elizabeth. Zacharias was a priest of the Lord. And he had gone up to Jerusalem to serve in the temple. And while there ministering, he had uh, a visitor. It was Gabriel, the messenger of the Lord. And the message was that Elizabeth was going to conceive and the child would be a boy and his name was to be called John. And Zacharias uh, found it hard to believe. So much so that he doubted and his punishment for doubting was that he was struck at least with the ability not to speak but probably also was deaf as well. And he remained that way until the eighth day after John was born, when finally he wrote down on a tablet, his name is John. Being obedient to the angel's command, his tongue was immediately loosened, and he did what he'd been waiting to do for months. He praised the Lord. We have here what's called his benedictus, his praise canticle to God. We also have in chapter one another song of praise, this one a praise of Mary, the mother of Jesus, when she also had an appearance from Gabriel. and He told her that she would conceive in her womb a son and his name would be Jesus. And he would be the savior of the world. And she was so overcome with gratitude that God would use a humble girl like her to bring himself glory that she just broke out in spontaneous praise. Now we come to the actual birth of Jesus here in Luke chapter 2. There's three things on your outline today I want you to notice about the birth of the Savior. Number one, his habitation. That is the environment, the atmosphere into, what, into which he was born. Secondly, his humility, the attitude that brought him to earth. And finally, his humanity, the fact that he is and was the God-man. Now you understand 
that when Jesus was born over 2,000 years ago, the historical context was not a coincidence. It was not as if Jesus was born in some random date to some random place to random parents. You understand that all of this, including the details of his birth, were all part of God's eternal redemptive plan. Before any of us had ever been born, God planned inside of the Trinity that he would redeem a people unto himself. And the means that he would do that was by sending the second person of the Trinity, his eternal son, to take on human flesh, live a perfect righteous life, and die on the cross for sinners. And now the time is ripe, and it's right, and into human history is born Jesus. This is all part of God's providence. God's providence is his intervention into the affairs of the world. It's not enough to believe that God created the heaven and the earth. That simply makes you a creationist. It does not make you a Christian. It does not mean that you have a Christian worldview. To have a Christian worldview, yes, you must believe that God created the heaven and the earth and everything in it, but that he is intimately uh, not only aware, but involved in the circumstances of life. That is, he is manipulating circumstances and time and space and individuals, and as we'll see today, even empires, to bring about that which he has willed to do. And what he has willed to do ultimately is to set aside and redeem a people for his own glory. So the first thing I want us to see is the habitation of the Savior. That is the historical setting and, and the environment to which he was born. But before we do that, it's important to establish a very important doctrine in your heart and mind. And that is a doctrine called the eternal sonship of Christ. When we say that, what we're denying is that Jesus began his existence at his birth or even at his conception. We are saying that the second person of the Trinity as God has always existed. You understand that, right? He was present at creation. In fact, John in his gospel begins the gospel like that. In the beginning was the Word, right? And the Word was with God and the Word was God. All things were created by Him and through Him and nothing's been created except through Him. And so understand that the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God, existed for all time in heaven with the Father and with the Spirit. And Paul probably gives us the clearest statement of that doctrine in the book of Philippians. You don't have to turn there, but listen to Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Paul says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. That is, he's co-equal in every way with God the Father and God the Spirit, but he doesn't hold on to the glories and the accoutrements of heaven. Instead, he says he emptied himself. The theologians call this the kenosis passage. The, the, the Greek word is to empty oneself. And he took on the form of a bondservant being made in the likeness of man. That speaks of his incarnation. Being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And this is what Jesus did. He left the glories of heaven to be conceived in the womb of a virgin girl, to be born as men are born, to live as men live, tempted in every way that we are, to ultimately accomplish the reason for his birth, that is his atoning death on the cross and ultimately his glorious resurrection. Sometimes we say of someone who's particularly 
talented or adept at something, that they were born to do that thing, right? Well, Jesus was born to die, born to die in our place on the cross. So with that established, let's look at the setting. Look at verse one of chapter two. Now in those days, that is, he's establishing the historical environment that Jesus was born into. There came a decree from Caesar Augustus. Now that tells us that the territory to which Jesus would be born was controlled by the Roman Empire. And if you remember very much about the Roman Empire from your study of Western civilization, you know that it was one of the most powerful and far-reaching empires the world has ever known. Wherever they went, they established roads and bridges and infrastructure. They put in military bases so that they could uh, take care of problems as they arose. They had a judicial system that was the envy of the world, and it was a great and powerful empire. But it took a lot of money to keep it afloat. And so one of the reasons that they kept conquering more and more territory was to fulfill their need of more and more tax money to keep the base back at home happy and well-fed. And so um, the particular emperor mentioned here is Caesar Augustus. Now, neither of those names is his actual given name. These are his titles. His actual name was Octavius. Octavius, as you might remember, was the great nephew of Julius Caesar, the one that Shakespeare wrote about, that you studied about in uh, world literature. And Julius Caesar, upon dying, left his inheritance to this young nephew, Octavius. But you remember that uh, Caesar was murdered, wasn't he? He was assassinated by a man named Brutus. And so Octavius gathered his military forces under two generals that assisted him and he defeated the opposition forces led by Brutus. And then when the war was over, they divided the empire into thirds and each one of them was to rule a third. But you know how those things go, right? It wasn't very long before they turned on one another. The other two, by the way, were I believe Lepidus and Mark Antony. And when Mark Antony's forces were ultimately defeated at the Battle of Actium, Octavian was left alone to rule. And he was given by the Roman uh, Senate this title of Caesar Augustus, unquestioned power throughout the empire. And so one of the first things he did was he made a decree that there was to be a census in all the inhabited world, that is throughout the empire. Now in those days, censuses were taken for two reasons. One was for the purpose of registering men to be conscripted into the army, or two, for the purpose of taxing the people. And the Bible clearly states that this census was taken uh, for the purpose of taxation. And so here we have it, Jesus born into this little province and this little uh, corner of this great and powerful Roman Empire. Now Luke was a very precise historian, so he puts a little finer point on it. And he says this was the first census taken while Quirinius was the governor of Syria. Now Syria is one of the oldest nations on earth. It's in the news today for very bad reasons, very tragic things going on there. We need to pray for Christians there in Syria. Damascus, one of the oldest cities in the world, still existing today. But the man that was the governor of that part of the world was a man by the name of Quirinius. He was a Roman and he had been rewarded for his allegiance to Octavius by giving, 
being given the governorship of Syria. And for the purposes of this census, Judea, where Jesus' folks were from, was placed under the authority of the Syrian governor, Quirinius. Now I have on my desk a book that I use probably as much as any other book in my library. It's titled simply, All the Men of the Bible. It was written years ago by a man by the name of Herbert Lockyer. And anytime I want to look up a biography, a brief snippet of the life of anyone in the Bible, I look to that book because it is literally an alphabetical listing of all of the names in the Bible. And so I looked up Quirinius this week to refresh my memory. And to my great disappointment, he was not there. And I took a little joy in the fact that this great learned man, Dr. Herbert Lockyer, had made a mistake. Because he has a little note there and says there's only one man in the Bible whose first name starts with Q. His name is Quartus. And he was just a little footnote in the book of Acts. And so I would have written him a letter, but uh, sadly he died many years ago. And so I just uh, enjoyed that moment myself. But the truth is, uh, probably if you have a King James Bible, his name starts with a C. And that's probably why Dr. Lockyer did not uh, have him in his book. The point is this, Quirinius was a very powerful man in that part of the world, but Luke is simply establishing the specifics of the timeline in which Jesus was born. Doesn't that give you encouragement that the Bible's true? That we have these kind of details from history? And so the Bible stands up very well against all the critics, historical critics, um, all sorts of theological critics. Don't be worried about people casting aspersions upon the veracity of the Bible. It has stood the test of time and it will continue to do that. Now, uh, let's look further. Um, You need to know that the Jews, of course, Jesus was born to Jewish parents, were chafing at this time under the Roman rule. Now, there were some benefits to being under Roman rule. Generally, uh, some things got better, the education system, the judicial system, public safety, public health. They had a military presence that tended to put down crime and rebellion and pirates and, and bandits and that sort of thing. As long as you paid your taxes, as long as you did what they want you to do, uh, it, it was somewhat a, a time of prosperity. In fact, this whole period of time is called the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. And so there's some great advancements during this time. But, but many of the people, particularly the Jewish people, chafed under the Roman government for a number of reasons. Uh, n- number one is this, they longed to be independent, right? They had this understanding that God had given them this land through the Abrahamic covenant. And yet here they were subjugated to a pagan power. They also chafed under the religion of the Romans, which was polytheistic, right? And pagan. They had the Old Testament law. The very first of the Ten Commandments says, have no other God before me, right? And have no graven images. And everywhere you went in the Roman Empire was what? It was a graven image. In fact, they even worshipped the emperor as a god. On their money, they had emblazoned on it an image of this god. Remember when Jesus was having the conversation with his disciples on whether or not they should pay their taxes. Jesus asked the question, whose image is on the coin? And they said, well, it's Caesar's. And Jesus says, then render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. But, but everywhere they went, there was a constant reminder of that pagan presence. And then to that, 
to add insult to injury, Caesar passes a law that you have to go to your ancestral hometown to be registered for a census and pay taxes, which by the way, the very act of having a census was against Hebraic law. And so they were constantly being put between a rock and a hard place, and, and many of them rebelled. Now, now, they knew better than to have an organized resistance. They, they could not come with armies against Rome. They would have been crushed immediately. But there was a lot of underground and guerrilla-type resistance. In fact, there was a, a political sect that were really terroristic organization called the Zealots, that emerged this time. You might remember that when Jesus was putting together his 12 disciples, one of them was from that party, Simon Zelotes. He also had one in his group of 12 disciples that worked for the Romans. He was a tax collector, a publican. His name was Matthew, right? And so you had quite an quite a eclectic group that were following Jesus around. Remember, the, the publicans were those who were from the local area, but they were contracted by the Roman government to take up taxes. And remember, most of them were very um, greedy. And in fact, to be a publican was, was synonymous with dishonesty and, and greed. Because they would be contracted to say, you have to raise this amount of money, and whatever you raise above and beyond that, you can keep. So they were incentivized to cheat, and they did. And so the tax collectors were very un, unpopular and indeed were considered traitors. So my, my point is this, there's this atmosphere that Jesus was born into of political friction, of uh, even some terrorism that was going on. So it was not that dissimilar to the atmosphere that uh, some children are being born into the world today. In other words, the people were anxious for a redeemer for a savior. They had been told all their life that one day there's coming a Messiah, a savior. And they understood that savior to be a political hero, even a military conqueror who would come in and cast off Roman oppression and rule and reign from the city of Jerusalem over God's chosen people. They were looking for a conquering king, but what they got instead was a suffering servant. So let's look secondly at the savior's humility. One might expect God, if he's going to become a man, to be born into a royal and a noble family, right? With, with all of the best of everything at just the, the right period of history, with lots of fanfare from the press. Is that how Jesus came into the world? Not hardly. I was watching the football games yesterday from over at Cowboy Stadium. Yesterday was the final day of the high school football season. All of the state championships were played over at Jerry World, including the game between Highland Park and Temple. It was a very good game, very close game. But did you notice that the quarterback of Highland Park was a young man by the name of uh, John Stephen Jones, the grandson of Jerry Jones, who owns the Dallas Cowboys and indeed the very stadium that his grandson was playing the state championship game in. And I began to think about that young man's life, though I don't know him, he seemed to be a very fine young man. I expect the day he went home from the hospital, he moved into a mansion there in Highland Park, and he spent his life flying around the world on private jets, having the best of everything. The Lord also blessed him with athleticism and good looks. He makes it to high school, and lo and behold, he becomes the star quarterback that leads his team to the state championship, who gets to play on television 
before 40,000 people there in the stadium, and he scores two touchdowns, is named the MVP of the winning team. And my love language is sarcasm. <laughs> and so as he was hoisting the state championship trophy, I said out loud to the television, good for you, young man, something finally went right in your life. <laughs> and I found what a stark contrast to the way the Lord Jesus came into the world. Not announced on television, not to famous or wealthy parents, but born to this couple, probably still teenagers, didn't know what they were doing, who were away from their home, had to travel to this little place called Bethlehem because this was the ancestral home of Joseph's family. The scripture says the time came for her to give birth and there was not even a room in the inn. So he was born among the animals. Now, Probably if you have a nativity scene at home, there's a stable, right? And we've heard all of our life, Jesus was born in the animal stable. Here's a little secret. The Bible doesn't say that. It just says that when he was born, he was wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger. The manger is a feed trough for animals. So we have extrapolated from that. Jesus was born in a stable. Um, the church tradition for several hundred years is that he was born in a cave. Because they often used caves to house animals in in the cold weather and so that more likely is the case whatever the case it was not an antiseptic hospital was it it was a very rugged and rough conditions and you can imagine how fearful mary must have been this teenage girl who never had a baby before and she starts going into labor and joseph's trying to help as best he can and they're telling him you can't even come inside and so here among all of those sounds and smells the savior of the world is born how humble the lord jesus is and every time i think i'm too good to do anything <laughs> i remember this the god of heaven that created me humbled himself paul says and he says let this be an example to you don't think more highly than you ought humble yourself for the good of others this is what jesus did now finally the humanity of Jesus. Look at verse 6. While they were there, that is in Bethlehem, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. And by the way, there is one church tradition that teaches the um, perpetual virginity of Mary. And we know that's not the case. The Bible teaches that Jesus had other brothers and sisters. He was the firstborn. So here the Bible clearly says that he was the firstborn. She wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. My, my point is this. Jesus is altogether God, right? If we deny that, we are in heresy. But he is also altogether man. To deny that is also heresy. Jesus was born as babies are born. I take it Mary had a nine-month gestation period, and when the time was right. When she came to term, she went into labor and she gave birth. Luke's a doctor. He knows all about this. But he used an incredible economy of words. When the time came, she gave birth. That's all he says. And he needed to be warmed. But we sing a children's song at Christmas, the little Lord Jesus, no crying he made. <laughs> I don't believe that. Do you? Not if he's altogether human. 
Because God gives babies one mechanism, one, one defense, because they are absolutely helpless when they come into the world, right? But they have one signal to let you know they're in need. What is it? They cry and they're good at it. And so Jesus was human and he was cold and he was wrapped up as all the other babies were in those days with these strips of cloth bundled up tightly, nice and snugly. And she did the best she could do. I'm sure if she had a bassinet from Babies R Us, she would have used it. But she didn't. She had a manger and so she made him as comfortable as possible and she laid him there. And as you look at the rest of the Gospels, we see Jesus presented as, as man, right? The reason I believe he cried when he was a baby is because he cried when he was an adult. The shortest verse in the Bible, two words, Jesus what? Wept. And he wept at the graveside of his friend Lazarus. We see Jesus sharing meals with his disciples. He got hungry. In fact, on the cross, another two-word statement of Jesus, I thirst. And when those nails went into his hands and feet and the spear into his side and the crown upon his forehead, he bled. He experienced pain. His body was mutilated and scarred by the whip. Jesus altogether, man, that's important because the scripture says that we don't serve a savior who cannot sympathize, right? I say it all the time. We don't serve a distant deity who is unmoved and uncaring. Instead, we serve a sympathetic Savior who has been tempted in every way that we are. The scripture says, yet without sin, Christ died for us. And so in God's sovereignty, through his providence, he sent his son to take on human flesh, to be born as a man, but as a servant. And he was born as men are born, and he experienced what men experienced, but there's one great difference. He is the sinless Savior. The Bible says all of us have sinned, and we fall short of the glory of God. And so what qualified Jesus to die in your place and in my place was his sinlessness. And so he did, 30 years later, what he was born to do. He went to the cross voluntarily. Jesus says, no man takes my life from me. I lay it down for you. And Jesus laid down his life for sinners like me and like you. And so what we rejoice in when we open our presents next week is not trinkets and baubles and plastic toys we have nowhere to put. What we rejoice in is the greatest gift of all that God became man, died in our place, and offers us grace. What we do not deserve and what we cannot earn. If you're here today, dear one, and uh, you're depending upon anything other than the grace of God for your salvation, I want to do everything within my power to disabuse you of that notion. God is not like man who has needs. You have nothing that God has need of. You have all the need that he can fulfill. God is perfectly sufficient in and of himself. You, on the other hand, like all of us, are sinners, 
separated from God because of our sin. The scripture says, God so loved the world of which you're a part that he sent his only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, did not have to stay in that state of separation from God. But instead, you would be given the gift of eternal life. Now, what do you do with a gift? Well, if you appreciate it, you receive it, right? You take it, and then you're grateful for it, and then you share it and its blessings with other people. I know I'm speaking primarily to Christians here today. But at Christmas time, like no other time of the year, we ought to be grateful, right? Thankful. Scripture says it's more blessed to give than to receive. And I know the Lord Jesus primarily there was talking about material things. But it's also a blessing to share our faith, isn't it? To give it away, not to, to hoard it and to say this is for me and, and my family. So, so let's be generous, not only with things this Christmas season, let's be very generous and open-handed with the gospel. Let's share it with the clerk at the, at the store. Let's share it with the waitress at the restaurant. Let's share it with our lost family members when they come next week for Christmas dinner. And as we do that, we remember the goodness and the graciousness of our Savior. Let's pray and give him thanks for that. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are grateful that in your sovereign plan at just the right moment, just as you had planned it before the foundation of the earth, Jesus was born into the world. And Father, it was a world not totally dissimilar to ours. They had political fighting, they had uh, terrorism, they had um, selfishness. Father, there were uh, those who were the haves and those who were the have-nots. Father, as an act of humility, Jesus was born to the have-nots. In fact, Jesus is, teaches us that all of us are the have-nots. We have not holiness in and of ourselves. We have no righteousness. We have no right standing with you. So the scripture says he came to seek and to save the lost. Father, I thank you for many hundreds in this room that you sought and that you bought by your blood on the cross, that you pursued and you saved. Uh, Father, perhaps there's another in this room that has not bowed to your Lordship yet. And Lord, I pray you'd take this gospel message we've heard today by your spirit and convict that one of sin and judgment and righteousness. Lord, I pray this Christmas season that you would draw lost souls to salvation. For those of us who do know you, Lord, I pray that we indeed would be very quick to share this good news with the lost and dying world around us. And Father, we know that you're able and you're still saving sinners today. So every time you do, Lord, I pray that we'd pause to give you thanks. We do that now through Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.